Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to the latest edition of the We Can't Wrestle podcast. Nate Maxson, your host, here with you. And this week, I have a very special show coming up. I have a special guest interview, conversation, whatever you want to call it this week. So stay tuned for that. Before we get started, I want to just let everyone know that the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network, which this show is part of the family of, is now available on YouTube. You can search for WrestleNet, one word, WrestleNet Radio on YouTube and find our new YouTube page. I will be putting up videos, uh, special bonus videos, uh, videos of clips of our recordings, um, different things going in our YouTube page. It costs you nothing to support the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network by going and joining us on YouTube. So please, please, please do. And aside from that, I will go over a couple of things after I am done with our interview here. But yes, I was very pleased to have this week here on the We Can't Wrestle Podcast a very special guest, Mr. John Arezzi, the host of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. He was the host of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show uh, some 30-odd years ago in the New York area um, covering um, all things wrestling, like the, the, the McMahon steroid trials and, and when, when, it, when a wrestler passes away or inside information and in interviews with, with Pauly Dangerously and, and Mick Foley at the time known as Cactus Jack and et cetera, et cetera. Lots of great personalities, lots of great callers, and lots of great info on that show 30 years ago and, and, and 30 years later listening to the show with John's knowledge of the business. And uh, John's also very proficient in the WWWF territory, especially uh, the, the time of the 70s and the 80s. And it was just great to have a conversation with John. So we will go to that right now. And on the flip side, I will give you a little more information on what's coming up on the show the next few weeks. But stay tuned. Here is my interview, my conversation with the one and only Mr. John Arezzi. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad to have on the We Can't Wrestle podcast this week on WrestleNet Radio, the one, the only, the host of Pro Wrestling Spotlight, the radio show, and the podcast. Mr. John Arezzi, thank you for joining me this week, John. I appreciate your time. No problem, Nate. I really appreciate you asking me to come on. Yeah, we uh, we love to, even though I'm only 44, uh, we love to talk about the expanse of history in the show. And I know you have a lot of a lot of knowledge about the history, especially the New York area, the WWWF territory. Um, so I love to have anybody on that. Like I've had, uh, I, I don't know if you know, Barry Rose, I've had him on to talk oh, yeah. about Florida yeah. and yeah, just, um, I, I, I love it. So, um, I think instead of making this about me, like I just did, let's make this about John, our guest. And John, if you just want to tell, uh, some of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, when did you first become a wrestling fan? Oh, uh, that really goes back to the sixties. Um, I was a kid, seven years old and, um, started watching it on TV. My oldest sister had called me into the living room to show me that there was this, uh, <laughs> there were these midget uh, <laughs> performers at the time wrestling in the ring. And I didn't know what the heck it was. And, and uh, that same show, uh, Bruno San Martino appeared uh, uh, an angle with Dr. Jerry Graham. And I was hooked. I was, I was hooked. And it was a, uh, it was the mid sixties. Uh, and uh, that's what really started my fandom which mm-hmm. was all those years ago, six, almost 60. Oh my God. Almost 60 years ago. <laughs> well, and it's just, it's so funny because wrestling such a generational thing. You know, I, yeah. uh, like for me, it's funny because the first I remember, the first thing I remember seeing on TV that was wrestling 
I was I was born in 78. It was probably 83. And I live in Ohio, so we didn't get a lot. We got like the WWF, the dying days of the Sheik's territory in Detroit. You know, right. uh, I lived in Toledo, so Fox 50, Fox 55 in Detroit still carried some of that. But the first thing I remember seeing on TV was Hulk Hogan returning to the WWF and teaming with Bob Backlund against, I think it was Mr. Fuji and Tiger Chung Lee. Wow. And that was, it was like 83. Cause it was when Hogan had first come back, you know, to start the Hulkamania deal, Bob had lost the title, of the iron Sheik. I didn't know what I saw, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I was fascinated. And then the so Hogan was champion or Backlund, which Backlund has already no, lost the was, title and Hogan was, yeah, already was, got it. This occurred during the interim, like while, while the iron Sheik had his title reign, because they they had brought Hogan back on TV. I I just remember I remember seeing the Victory magazine banner mm-hmm. up. So it had to be All Star Wrestling. Um, but Hogan wasn't the champ yet, and Backlund had lost the title. So it had to be in that thirty. What was it? Thirty two days or whatever. That the wow, it had Sheik to be. Had it had to be. Um, yeah, because uh, Hogan won the title. Uh, Sheik won the title in uh, December, I believe. Yes. Of- 83 and then Hogan came in in January and, and beat the Sheik mm-hmm. in the yeah. four. And that's the, yeah, that's the, and then, and then my prime fandom started like, and, and what's great about that's what I love about your show. We'll talk about it is my prime fandom probably started when I was around 10 or 11. So that would have been 89. Mm-hmm. So my prime fandom was from 89, probably through the end of the attitude era. And okay. so your show's covering so much of the behind the scenes stuff from when I was, really a big fan and it's fascinating to me because back then i didn't have, i was 11 i didn't know what a dirt sheet was you know it's yeah, of course <laughs> but yeah i know uh back to you you were uh the uh you had fred blassie's fan club you were the leader of that weren't you yeah i started that up in uh 72 i'd gotten a permission slip signed by fred in december in 71 and uh, started the club mid 72 and really didn't know too much about what to do except for that I felt that I needed to start a, a magazine or a little fan uh, bulletin as we called it back then uh, to honor Blassie so uh, that became a labor of love for me and um, I always admired Freddie uh, with everything that he'd gone through in his career and the fact that he was a heel on the east baby face on the west coast came back from a number of injuries was one of the best heels I've ever seen. So he was mm-hmm. just kind of somebody that I gravitated to. And, uh, the fan club ran really from 72 through 75. And when I went to college in 75, it, I kind of got away from it. Uh, but we had won the fan club of the year in 1974 by the wrestling fans international association, the best monthly, uh, fan club bulletin, and then we won the um, uh, the After Mag uh, Fan Club of the Year in '74 as well. So it was really cool, and it also gave me an introduction uh, to magazines. And uh, I was taking photographs at the time, so I was able to kind of segue into a, a, a freelance uh, writer photographer for all the magazines. Mm-hmm. Did I guess for me, only seeing him on what I've seen on TV. And et cetera, et cetera. And, and to be honest, not having seen a lot of, I guess I haven't seen a lot of Freddie in his prime just because mm-hmm. a lot of that doesn't exist, you know, or, or it's hard to find or what. So have rare. You. Yeah. So rare. Um, what was, I guess what I'll say is what was it like seeing him in his prime 
And then also knowing him behind the scenes, was he just as bodacious as he was on camera? He was um, behind the scenes. He was always very cooperative with the fan club and with me personally and granted interviews and was the friendliest guy ever, you know, but he had mm -hmm. that gruff voice and uh, me seeing Freddie in his prime. I think his prime was more of uh, mid 60s, uh, early 60s. And, and then when he came into the WWF in 71, uh, he was towards the end of that career, but he was still able to draw heat. Unlike anyone I'd ever seen, mm -hmm. uh, the fans, uh, you know, that suspension of disbelief was there. And Fred made you believe that he was a vicious heel. And then he go to the West Coast and go on TV there, and they called him El Rubio. They loved him. He was this incredible fan favorite after he turned babyface there. So very compelling career. But one of those individuals that um, uh, strictly believed in kayfabe and uh, also was just so good at anything he did from wrestling and then segueing into managing, he was um, he was one of a kind. Um. And also uh, something that, that he doesn't, I think, doesn't get or doesn't get mentioned enough and doesn't get enough credit for is being, you mentioned East Coast, West Coast in the States, also being the protagonist for Ricky Dozan in Japan. Yes. Really, really kind of started up Japanese pro wrestling. You know, I mean, I, I just I don't hear that brought up enough like i as an example on a show on a show on our show we have our own hall of fame yeah it's just our little hall of fame but i have a panel of like 12 or 15 guys and we vote on it every year and blah 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 since i started the thing i've been trying to get ricky dozan in <laughs> because of how you know it's just they don't i don't think people don't realize new japan all japan you may not have had that if it wasn't for him and blassie yeah, they certainly drew uh, major crowds out there. And Fred uh, always told the stories that uh, uh, that he would say dozens of people died of heart, heart attacks watching <laughs> me uh, beat their, you know, their hero. Um, I don't know if uh, one person died or however he said uh, died uh, watching them compete in, in Japan. But... Yeah, without that feud and without the houses they drew and that incredible uh, heel American versus the Japanese hero at the time, uh, that was definitely groundbreaking and historic for that uh, that part of the world. Yeah, I've heard stories that that's, that's why people in, in Japan bought TVs. That's what started people wanting to buy TVs in Japan was to watch Ricky Dozan and, and Fred Blassie. And I mean, yeah. what a... What a what a culturally impactful human being, you know. I mean, absolutely. Um, and then I know you uh, you have another show other than Pro Wrestling Spotlight talking about your time times going to Madison Square Garden. Um, mm -hmm. That had to be amazing to be to be there in the heyday of Bruno and. I wasn't even I wasn't even born yet, and I you know it's just yeah. to be. I'm sure it was electric. Yeah, the garden was incredible. I do a podcast called Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, where every month I go back and take a look at uh, a house show that I attended 50 years ago. So uh, right now we uh, just recorded the January 15th, um, 19, 1973 show mm -hmm. in the garden, which I was at. And that was the very first uh, show that I actually shot eight millimeter films at. 
So um, I went to every Garden House show consecutively from August 30th, 71 through mid-77. Didn't miss one. And the Garden was, uh, as they say, the mecca of wrestling. Everybody wanted to be at the Garden. And if you were able to wrestle on a card at the Garden, uh, most people say that's when they knew they made it as a pro wrestler. And the beauty of the garden was, is that each month, uh, not only the local heroes like Pedro Morales and Bruno and Chief J Strongbow and uh, the other regulars that were there, uh, there would always be special appearances, whether it's uh, Mil Moscaris coming in from Los Angeles or uh, Ray Stevens or, I mean, there were just so many, uh, the Funks, uh, Dory Sr. and Terry, um, Anoki, Shohei Baba. I mean, it was like every month there was always like this a special attraction. Vern Gagne came in and wrestled there w- with the AWA belt. Uh, so that was a magical time uh, for me covering the business. And you look back at it now all those years ago and you realize just how special it was to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's the same way I think for, for, anybody you know you you look back and and see something where you you got to see so many huge stars and i know bruno and pedro were probably the most over faces would you say in that in that territory at the time yeah i would say uh i know um, bruno but <laughs> morales of course with the title run that he had from uh february 71 and then he lost the title to stasiak uh december 73 and then bruno came back in for the second reign and those were the guys. It was Bruno and Pedro. And it was also in 73 when they introduced Andre the Giant mm. in March of 73. And that was his first New York appearance. And then be, then he became uh, not just a special attraction, but kind of a mainstay. Because Vince McMahon Sr. signed him to an exclusive booking agreement, gave him the name Andre the Giant, and turned him into this worldwide phenomenon uh, that was uh, uh, someone that fans would certainly buy tickets and flock to the arenas to see mm-hmm. um the who would you say in that during that time that you were going to those shows was what which which heels got the most heat at that time was there anybody consistent i know heels were kind of in and out because they would come mm-hmm. in and, and you know do the do the run with bruno and then back down the card and then maybe go to another territory. I know back then the heels didn't stay as, as long as the baby faces right. did in the territory. But I, I guess during the time that was the sweet spot for me, uh, Blassie, of course, got tremendous amount of heat. And then when uh, Spiro Sarion turned in uh, late 74, January 75, and had that run and did four sellouts in a row at Madison Square Garden against Bruno, uh, that was probably more heat than I had ever seen before. Um, it was just amazing. And there were guys that would come in, like George Animal Steel would always create a lot of heat when he was in. And uh, it was just it was just nonstop. Uh, but I, I think my memories, um, Blassie, certainly, but Arion, that heel turn was, uh, to this day, uh, the most surprising and then the most uh, heat generating a turn that I'd seen ever. Um, I know I hear stories about, you know, you could hear a pin drop when Ivan Koloff beat uh, Bruno for the title. Were you there at that show? No, I wasn't. I, I was, um, I was in high school. 
and I remember reading about it in the newspaper mm-hmm. on January 19th. And uh, he lost on January 18th. And I was not old enough. I was just turning 14 in New York. In New York, they had a state athletic commission law that you had to be 14 and older to see a show in oh. New York. And I think they only enforced it at the Garden. I think uh, some of the smaller venues and the spot shows, uh, kids were allowed, but never at the Garden until they changed that law several years later. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was that was that was a real interesting time. I think the the uh, the biggest thing I can compare it to that I've seen with my own eyes, <laughs> as far as the as far as just a result resulting in just a crowd going silent was when when Brock Lesnar beat the Undertaker streak yes at WrestleMania 30 i mean that was that was insane you've seen it you see it's like you know what was it a 6 67,000 person stadium yeah. and it's you could hear a pin drop it's insane yeah and everyone <laughs> was shocked i mean yeah. i was shocked watching it and uh, i thought that they would keep uh taker streak alive till he retired uh, I, I think that would have been a good thing to do uh, looking mm-hmm. back at it now, but that was, that was kind of, everyone was shocked that Undertaker's streak was over. Yeah, I couldn't, I, I think I want to, honestly, I want to say that the, me and the guys that were watching at my house that night, I don't think even the rest of that, I know eventually Daniel Bryan won the title at that show, but I don't think we talked about anything. I don't think we paid attention to the rest of the show because we spent Mm -hmm. the subsequent hour and a half or whatever, just talking about, I can't believe the undertaker streak is over. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. Amazing. So moving along after, um, when did you, okay. So when you got into radio in college, was that your, yeah, I went to a junior college initially in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Graham Junior College, and then I transferred over to Emerson College in Boston to get my uh, bachelor's. But I, I went in uh, to Graham with a concentration for radio and television, and and uh, I actually pitched a concept to the uh, program director, uh, which was a pro, pro wrestling spotlight uh, wrestling show for the college station, and uh, the guy fortunately was a wrestling fan and he decided to give me a shot. And that's where, you know, my pro wrestling spotlight day started was in 75. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, and that, and it's, you know, you think about it in time perspective, you know, I was, once we get to your, actually your radio show on uh, EBD and such, the, the fact that and this is for younger people. Um, nowadays there are, one thousand or one million one thousand one hundred and seventy two pro wrestling podcasts i always say it's like there's everybody's got a show now but Mm -hmm. back then in the days of radio there wasn't there weren't a lot of people covering wrestling on the radio you know and and that's very innovative for the time yeah it was i mean uh, when i was attending uh, as a fan at the garden when i was 13 14 there was a uh, public access radio station, WHBI uh, 103.9, I believe, was the dial in New York. And after the Garden shows, um, they did a they did a wrestling show. Bill Apter was one of the original hosts, and that lasted for a little bit. And then there was a myriad of hosts after that. But that WHBI show, which had a weak signal, was kind of the first, uh, in, in my recollection, of anyone ever being on radio. Uh, and then when I went to college and started Pro Wrestling Spotlight, um, it was uh, it, it was kind of you know couldn't hear it other than in the local 
uh, Kenmore Square uh, vicinity and in the dorms. But uh, I knew that there was something there with wrestling talk because everyone in, in the dorm, my friends, people followed wrestling that you had no idea who did. And they loved the idea of listening every week and hearing me uh, make predictions. The show was more kayfabe. It wasn't uh, an insider show right. in college. And the guest I was able to bring on uh, from the Valiant Brothers, Freddie Blassie, the Grand Wizard was on all the time. He was based in Massachusetts. So it was really kind of an interesting uh, uh, concept uh, for pro wrestling talk on radio. And of course, today uh, with podcasts, like you said, there I wouldn't doubt there are a million plus <laughs> podcasts. Everyone has one. Yeah, and that's that's why I always you know I always look and uh, there's there's a website called Chartable where you can see where you're ranking, yes. and when I see when I see a, a, one of our sh- one of my shows on uh, even at like 145, mm-hmm. I'm like you know what <laughs> for all the millions of shows that are out there I- I'm happy with 145 at this point. Yeah, that means know? a lot, and when you when you see what the Chartable data is, and you know my show uh, that I do now is you know it comes in and. Um, and it lingers about number 70, 75, 90, goes up sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that this year is going to give it a lot of growth for some of the changes I made. But um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it is a testament because there are so many. And you know that the upper echelon, the Jim Rosses and the, you know, the Conrad Thompson empire with all mm-hmm. the performers he deals with. Uh, and some great content there and Brian last and Jim Cornette and how popular their shows are. And Conan's is another one that's really yeah. good. So, I mean, there, when you're looking at the top 30, I mean, these are superstars. Superstars. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, so coming out of college and then going into now starting the pro wrestling spotlight um, show on, on, on the air on radio, your first station. Why do I always get NYG? WNYG. Yeah. I mean, my, my, you know, my, my wrestling talk days. I mean, when I got out of college, I got out of wrestling. Uh, I really wasn't in it. I was uh, first working for the New York Mets uh, in the, in, uh, in a marketing and PR sales capacity uh, in the minor leagues. And then I left that job to manage a country singer uh, and I really stayed out of the whole wrestling bubble. Uh, in 1985, George Napolitano and I, uh, I went to WNYG because I, when I, I have such an interesting story. But in 1982, I moved back to New York from the Carolinas, and I started. Uh, I got my first real, you know, radio job at WNYG, doing some sports and doing some ad sales. And uh, it was a mom and pop owned station. And then in '85, when wrestling was really exploding, and I moved back to New York. I'd gone back and forth from Carolina to New York uh, twice. And when I moved back to New York permanently for the time <laughs> uh, in '85, I went to I went to George and I said, "Listen, you know, maybe we should do a radio show." And he said yes. He knew a lot of people. He was mm-hmm. very well Obviously, connected. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so uh, WNYG agreed to give us a Saturday slot. And um, we did one show there. Uh, Tully Blanchard was one of the guests and Captain Lou Albano was the other. And uh, we played a song, uh, Captain Lou's History of Music. And uh, the owner, who was probably in his 80s at the time, was in the radio station that 
afternoon and heard it and it was like what's this on my radio station and he threw us off after just one episode and <laughs> he threw us off and that was the end of it so thanks a lot uh, albano <laughs> that was it and uh and it was like wow um wrestling was so hot it would have been really good i think we would have uh, done really well with it but then uh uh, I continued on with, you know, the music business stuff. And then in 89, uh, my music management company went under and I needed something to fall back on. So I was like, well, let me see if I can get back into wrestling. And that's when I approached WNYG again. Uh, but this time it was more of a revenue share and then a brokerage situation where I paid for the airtime. And uh, the owner's wife, who also ran the station, she she put me on. And uh, that debuted on uh, uh, NYG uh, in April of 89. And uh, immediately there was an audience. Mm -hmm. And it started out kayfabe a little bit in the beginning. And then it kind of transitioned into a insider show. No one was doing that. So uh, if, for those of you who have not yet listened, of course, we'll talk about all of John's ventures Um the, the, the podcast and, and the and your book and everything like that. But if you haven't listened to the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, you should definitely. I love the stories about the little crew there at that radio station. I just, it to me, like when you tell the stories about the people that owned it and the people that worked there, it's like, man, that could have been a sitcom. <laughs> oh, it certainly could have been a sitcom. The owners were very interesting people. Mrs. Hornstein, Mrs. Mr. Hornstein, uh, the, the the people that came in and out of that station as employees and broadcasters. And it was just kind of a, it was almost like uh, an island of misfit toys, uh, WNYG uh, was. And, uh, but, you know, it was the only place that even if you left and got fired or quit, they'd always welcome you back. So it was an odd, odd place. There was never a bridge that was burned there. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting, interesting place. The only negative there was the signal. The signal was just a thousand watts. So it wasn't heard in a very wide area. And it was what they would call a daytimer. So when the sun sets, because of the FCC regulations, they'd have to drop their wattage from a thousand watts down to 10. Oh. And and then no one would hear it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you would hardly be able to hear it next door. <laughs> No, I mean, that was kind of a challenge. And uh, so that's why I always insisted on a on an early daytime slot. Uh, but as we uh, as we progressed with the show and it really turned a corner when Ricky Steamboat left the NWA uh, and uh, over a contract dispute. And he came on mm -hmm. my show to talk about it, uh, which was never really discussed before openly uh, a, a contract negotiation. Then Jim Hurd came on. And uh, and then slowly it started turning into more of a shoot show and an insider show and giving people information that they would never hear before on a radio yeah. show. Especially, you know, and having having Dave Meltzer on as frequently as you did and Wade Keller. Yep. Um, did you know those guys before you started the show or did you meet them through doing your show? I met them from doing the show i okay. had subscribed to the observer i believe it was in 88 when i heard about it and uh, and then wade came along with the pro wrestling torch and and i felt that you know these were the guys that were plugged in these were the guys especially dave that was getting all the inside info and i'd invite him on the show and then we developed a friendship and we talked several times a week and 
And uh, as my presence grew in the area and doing what I was doing, uh, it was a good collaboration to speak with Dave every week about what was going on behind the scenes and comparing notes. And uh, he uh, he credits me for uh, really uh, uh, getting the Northeast fans aware of what was going on with the Wrestling Observer. And he got quite a few subscribers uh, based on not just the NYG audience, but the other stations I transitioned to after yeah. NYG. Um, and forgive me for not remembering just as a side note, cause I can't remember. Did you ever have Steve Beverly on also? Oh yeah. Very, very often actually. I don't, know, I don't know why I couldn't remember. Cause I just, I remember, I remember through listening to the show, I remember Wade a lot and Dave a lot. And I just couldn't remember if Steve was on. Yeah. Steve concentrated more on the television side of things and, uh, and he had a really good relationship with, uh, Jim Hurd. Uh, so he'd get some really cool uh, inside info from NWA and WCW, but he his his newsletter was basically, um, you know, what the ratings were and, mm-hmm. and just more covering it on the TV side. But he was a very smart dude and he was very insightful and he had good good connections. Um, so Steve uh, Steve came on my show pretty fre- frequently. Uh, before he stopped publishing uh, Matt Watch, and he stopped publishing Matt Watch in '92. Uh, okay, and then I know we'll, we, as your show go, as your show goes on, and, and like I said, everybody, I'm listening to the podcast every single week. You should too. Hearing the progression, um, you get into. You were very involved with um, the WWF scandals that went on. And actually to the point where you were actually on the Donahue show with Vince McMahon and Dave Meltzer. Yeah, I was, um, uh, you know, that, that, that whole thing, that whole steroid, uh, scandal that started, uh, you know, really started when Billy Graham appeared on my show in March of, uh, 1990, I believe to talk about what steroids did to him. And, and, um, I became kind of an advocate uh, for uh, awareness of what was going on with these guys and the bodies and the way they were being pushed uh, because if you didn't have that big muscular uh, frame, you weren't going to get a big push. And, and, and then it got to the point where almost 90% of the wrestlers were doing steroids. And then Zaharian gets arrested, uh, Dr. George Zaharian, and I'm breaking that story on my radio show. Um, cause Billy Graham was kind of tipping me off on what was going on and he knew there was investigations and possible, uh, arrests that were going to be made. I mean, so, uh, I was able to really sink my teeth into that. And then, you know, with all the shenanigans that WWF was doing to, uh, not keep everybody informed what was going on, especially when they started a steroid testing policy. Uh, it was just a, it was just a two or three years of just, craziness and then the sex scandals came about and so yeah i was one of the guys that everybody went to um because i was so uh i was so embedded in covering everything that was going on with these scandals it's uh it the the name of the documentary the nine lives of vince mcmahon is very accurate because uh, that mm-hmm. guy man you, you look you look at the history of his life and you go through it and how many how many scandals he's he's weathered i guess you know to to just i don't i don't know if he's ever even had to pay a fine <laughs> you know what i mean yeah i mean like uh, he's what they would call they used to call john Gotti, the guy that ran the gambino crime family a uh, teflon don uh because he was kind of bulletproof in a lot of ways and mcmahon is really 
proven that himself. I mean, not only from beating a federal uh, a case against him that could have sent him to jail, but everything that he's done uh, to avoid uh, going to jail or uh, being accountable for the alleged uh, things that were going on. And that nine lives doc on McMahon, even though a lot of people were like, well, there was nothing new in it. It was all dark side of the ring stuff. Uh, for the for for the person who wasn't a hardcore wrestling fan to see a documentary like that and then kind of see how he has survived and had those nine lives and it continues today it continues today with what he's trying to do uh to and and what he has done to get back into the company to run the company and to have the majority of the voting shares which he had when he started and they went public um, this guy is never going to leave the wrestling business until he takes his last breath, without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, I did a long, um, a long uh, discussion about it in uh, the podcast I just taped last week that's going up uh, this week for everybody, um, where it was kind of like, it seems like no time has passed now. 30 years ago, I was covering all of this stuff, and now I'm covering it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, at the end of the day, my gut feeling is is that um, he's going to try to bring money people in so he could turn the company private again uh, and get it out of being a public company. You know, anything could happen, but that's just kind of my gut knowing that this guy doesn't want to give up power. Right. And it, that was kind of my thing. Um, not, not the uh, well, firstly, for the Vince McMahon documentary, you mentioned that. I saw a lot of people and, and the internet wrestling community is a whole nother thing that I've had many rants on, on my show. Very um, much. Such a negative, toxic environment. But anyway, the, a lot of those people that criticize that documentary don't think about the fact that when vice, when a, when a network like vice or any network, A and E, anybody makes a documentary about Vince McMahon or a Hollywood star or whatever, they aren't trying to appeal to us, the hardcore fans. No, they have to appeal to a mainstream audience. So, like you said, yeah, somebody might say, "Oh, that was just a bunch of footage from Dark Side of the Ring." Well, probably, I'd say, what sixty percent of the people that watch that documentary didn't even watch Dark Side of the Ring. They would switch, were just watching a documentary about this wrestling guy. They're not hardcore wrestling fans. Mm-hmm. So, uh, people forget that that you know, regular television isn't just trying to appeal to us, the people no. that. You know, the people that watch, you know, I'm the guy that sits here at at nine o'clock at night after the wife goes to bed and pulls up some old wrestling from 1982 or whatever. Your average person, not that guy. (laughs) That's Um, true. uh, But yeah, and to what you were saying about Vince, and and I I will be interested to hear your your dissertation on it on the show about going private. I almost thought, like, I I guess my, my instinct was, I was thinking maybe at the, the, the most potential buyer to me is NBC just because they have, they, they're so they've been intertwined with, with the company since, you know, since they got since TNT, when they went on the USA oh, yeah. network yeah. and, and from that company's perspective, I would think they would think, well, we could spend $6 billion now and just buy the whole thing. Or every five years have to buy the television rights again. So why not just buy the whole thing, own the whole thing? So I think mm-hmm. if they don't go private, I think NBC makes the most sense as far as a buyer goes. It does. I mean, it really does. NBC Universal, owned by Comcast, 
um, that is a that is a, a that is a perfect match, uh, and especially now that the rights fee uh, the rights fees are going to be uh, negotiated again with mm-hmm. uh, with NBC Universal for Monday Night Raw, and and of course the Peacock deal still has another two or three years left on it, and then Fox is going to be renegotiating uh, negotiating a new deal for SmackDown, and both of these networks lost an enormous amount of money uh, over the last. Uh, uh, since the last deal was consummated, um, just based on delivery and audience and uh, advertising revenue. So there is an urgency uh, for the WWE now to uh, sell before these rights fee deals have to be negotiated for the future. Right. Because uh, they're not going to be the same as they got. You know, a billion dollars from NBC Universal, a billion dollars from Fox for SmackDown. Uh, there was a billion dollar. It was a billion dollar deal for Peacock, and the yeah. WWE still retains the ownership of the intellectual property and the archives and the footage. So, a company like NBC Universal it makes sense for them to buy it, so they own all of it. Uh, but. Will McMahon do that? Will he pull the trigger with one of those bigger companies? There's a long list of companies like Netflix and even Warner Brothers Discovery. They're all on a list about being potential suitors. Uh, it's never, uh, and the list that I've seen, you know, Saudi Arabia has never been on there, but in a way, Saudi Arabia makes the most sense um, just because they have unlimited money mm-hmm. to acquire the WWE or worker deal out with McMahon. I mean, it's very intriguing. It's very, um, it, 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 it's a, um, it, it, it is a fascinating look at an entertainment company run by a guy who has, uh, not only been a genius, but he's also been a, he's also been a pretty pretty bad dude in yeah, so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of those guys that it's, it's, you have to you separate the entertainer from the personality, you know, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, I, 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 especially being, like I said, a kid of the eight of the eighties and nineties and his product was such a big part of my childhood and my, you know, and, and that was the WWF was wrestling to me, you know, and I watched the NWA and WCW, but so I have to say, I can't ever say I loathe Vince McMahon as a as a promoter because his product mm-hmm. was my product, but as a person, he's a bastard. Let's it's just you know the, the long and short of it is he's a bastard, and it is what it is. But um, the oh, because I don't want to keep you forever, but I had to bring it up because we have a lot of comedy on this show. We we do a lot of comedic stuff. Um, and one of the most comedic characters to me as a person in the history of wrestling, I know you had a, a lot of interaction with him at one point was, was Herb Abrams. And yeah. uh, we've, we've talked about Herbie here on the show quite a bit, just because what a, what a roller coaster of a human being and a promotion. <laughs> yeah. He was one of the most unique individuals I ever met. I mean, he was just a little guy in stature uh, with a big, big, big personality, um, obviously had the drug uh, problems, uh, uh, and uh, he was a very unique dude. He was crazy in a lot of ways, and he was David versus Goliath, and he was he just 
spent a lot of money and lost a lot of money. But uh, when you look at eccentric promoters and if you look at uh, people that will live in the lore of wrestling as, as the most unusual, uh, he would have to come to mind. Oh, most definitely. I mean, one of one of my favorite episodes we've ever done of this show was we we did a review of the uh, the UWF uh, Blackjack Brawl and just I was the there. Ins- the insanity of the whole thing and the insanity of him and and I don't know it's just it what what a what a what a roller coaster that is to watch and sometimes as a wrestling fan I don't know about you but sometimes as a wrestling fan as funny as it sounds the bad stuff is almost as fun to watch as the good stuff. Well, without a doubt. I mean, it's such a bizarre business and you have these uh, bizarre individuals that come in and uh, yeah, it is. It's fascinating to look at the, uh, the craziness of what the wrestling business really is deep inside it. It's uh, it's a freaking insane. And um, then also, of course, we round out the conversation. We know we talked about radio. We talked about your beginnings and now you are in the podcast business. Mm-hmm. Um with the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. And if you want to let our listeners know, I've talked about your show. I actually reference your show sometimes on my show. Um, and I always give credit. <laughs> but, you know, I, I will say, if we're talking about something in historical context, you know, I heard this on John Arezzi's show that was covered, you know, something such and such. But I really love the idea of talking about 30 years ago now. And like I said, I, I, I appreciate it just because it, it really is from the epitome of my young wrestling fandom listening to you cover that stuff in real time back then. It's just fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating to me because I don't, I, I haven't, you know, I saved all the shows on tape. I, I, I didn't throw them out. I kept them in chronological order. And now what I get to do is I get to go back 30 years to cover what I covered 30 years ago on pro wrestling spotlight. And that is kind of the meat of what I do. And, you know, and I, I, I got in, I mean, I really got into it really, uh, in 89 to 95 when the show ran, it was not a good time for pro wrestling with all the scandals, with everything mm-hmm. that was going on. But, um, when you look back, especially now that I'm starting to cover 1993, and what a pivotal year that was in so many ways. You had, um, you know, right off the bat, you had Jesse Ventura suing the WWF over royalty payments, which no one had ever gotten before. And so you bring him on and he talks about it. Then Paulie Dangerly get, gets fired from uh, WCW because they said he fudged his expense reports. And he comes on uh, out of character and talks seriously about it. That's the episode that we have on this week. Uh, and then you have the death of Andre the Giant, uh, which is coming up in just a couple of weeks, and the suicide of Kerry Von Erich, and uh, all of all of the breaking news that happened, and Ultimate Warrior finally leaving WWF, and he comes on the show to, uh, out of character. Uh, and then uh, later on, uh, you know, Conan uh, comes in, and I put together a deal to bring AAA in with him, and on a show that we're featuring uh, the first week of March. It's Conan's first appearance at WEVD in the studio. And on the telephone is Terry Funk. And that's where those two gentlemen met for the very first time. So it's really fascinating history. And to hear it in real time and to be able to go and listen to it uh, each week when I put a new show into the cassette machine and I digitize it, I'm fascinated by it. 
I'm fascinated by what I was talking about 30 years ago. And the real star of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast are the clips. Are going back and, and hearing these individuals in, in real time. And another thing you said about 93 being such a pivotal year, um, for those of you that may not know or may not have lived through that back then or what have you, you'll also notice as you go through 1993, especially in the WWF, this is that is when the change in the style also happened because of the whole steroid thing. You know, they're they're transitioning from guys like Hulk Hogan and the Warlord to guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Right. And it's so interesting to watch that transition of the style of the show because because you have slimmer, trimmer athletes, the matchups get better. You know, the match yeah. quality gets better. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's just fascinating. It's a fascinating year in wrestling. It may not have been financially successful, but as a fan, it's fascinating to watch. Oh, it certainly is. I mean, it was it was a down year attendance wise. And uh, I mean, our show, the AAA show that we brought into Los Angeles in August of 93 was the third largest house of the year uh, under WrestleMania and SummerSlam. So, uh, uh, yeah, but for the most part, business was down. Um, but, yeah, it was a it was an interesting year. And uh, I look forward to uh, sharing all of these archives and interviews and callers and even some of the zaniness that took place during that time period um, where I, I bounced around a lot from the station to that station. It was always brokered. No one wanted to pay for a wrestling show back then. So uh, even my personal, um, my personal uh, struggles to try to keep it alive uh, when I hear it every week, I'm like, uh, it brings back these memories like, I was not not a quitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to listening to it. And I, like I said, I always suggest to our listeners that they listen to the pro wrestling spotlight podcast with John Arezzi. And also if you want to hear, or you don't want to hear, if you want to read John's story, because there's a whole lot more than what we discussed here. um, You should check out his book, Matt memories. Um, It's a great book. It's a great read. It's a page turner. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And I appreciate you being part of uh, my Patreon community. I mean, oh, yeah. Uh, that's, uh, very, I'm very appreciative. And if anybody wants to uh, check it out, it's patreon.com slash John Arezzi. And I have all the radio shows up there. You know, we put a new one up every week uh, from 30 years ago. So there are 189 radio shows up there right now and all kinds of other content. I mean, extra, just photographs that I shot and videos and and so much more content is up there so uh, uh, i'd welcome you five bucks uh, a month get you in the door and you have access to 189 radio shows right and yeah i mean i and as a, as a hit like i mentioned earlier as a guy that likes to go through the history especially the stuff that i wasn't even alive for i I'm a, i like to go back and there's so much stuff on there i could i could get caught up on there for hours yeah, Patreon. you can spend months on there and not hear everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that being said, John, I appreciate your time. I've taken up enough of it. Thank you for letting thank you for being a great interviewer that's letting a not so great interviewer interview you I here on the We Can't Wrestle podcast. And again, everybody, join John with his podcast, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight Podcast, which actually I'm gonna be on in a couple of weeks. So yes, you are looking forward to that. And uh, I want to thank you, John, very much for joining us this week. All right. Thank you. It was my pleasure.
Well, everyone, there you have it, my conversation with Mr. John Arezzi, and it was a pleasure to have John on the show this week, and I hope to have him back because there's still so much more we could talk about. Just listening back to the interview, I'd love to ask some, him some questions about being backstage and his interactions with the Grand Wizard and blah, 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 blah. Just so much else I'd love to talk to John about, so we'll definitely have him back sometime. Um, and as he mentioned, and as I have too, please do check out his Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. You can find it anywhere that you find your favorite podcasts. And thanks again, John, for being on the show. And as we close out this week, I want to thank all of you for listening. Again, remind you to find the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network on YouTube and check out all the other shows here on our network. Of course, Reliving the Extreme, where we are reliving literally week-to-week ECW um, with Chad Austin and my brother Aaron. And, of course, check out If You Smell What the Arch is Cooking with our host Archie Mitchell and It Marks Indie Spotlight with Mark Brew and uh, so many more shows here on the WrestleNet Radio Podcast Network, and I am very proud of each and every one of them. And next week we will begin our conversation about the We Can't Wrestle podcast class of 2022. And uh, I'll tell you right now, the people that got in this year all deserve it. It was hard to vote. It's always hard to vote on the ballot because there's some people you want to you want to get in and you can't get in or whatever, and they're only allowed to be on the ballot for five years. They have to go back to be inducted or, or into, into the induction process or the ballot process. It's crazy. But this year, the Road Warriors, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Shawn Michaels, Gene Okerlund, Fred Blassie, Buddy Rogers, Kurt Henning, and Paul Heyman all inducted into the We Can't Wrestle Podcast Hall of Fame. And next week... I will start talking to different people that are on the uh, the voting panel for the Hall of Fame about who they voted for and what they thought about who got in this year. So stay tuned for that. The Hall of Fame episodes begin next week. And I will stop rambling now and let you all get back to your lives. Thank you once again for joining me this week on the We Can't Wrestle podcast. And we'll see you next time around, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>